Welcome to the best of the joys of binge reading 2023. This is part two, the second and final of our episodes featuring the most listened to shows on our popular fiction podcast, chosen solely on the basis of the number of times you, our audience, listen to them. It goes without saying they're all bestsellers, authors at the top of their game. There's something for everyone here, nerve-wrenching contemporary thrillers from Ireland to a French love story from a well-loved British TV actress, a World War II spy mystery by an Australian set in the house of Dior in Paris, and a riveting journey into the world of the famous Mitford sisters, once acclaimed as London society beauties and then reviled as rotten traitors. And if that isn't enough, we've got a Silver Rush mystery series set in Colorado. We present brief excerpts from each show with links for where to find the full episode if you'd like to hear more. As in previous years, we've selected shows that aired between December 1, 2022 and December 1, 2023. So here they are, excerpts from the top six shows of 2023 on The Joys of Binge Reading. Irish thriller author Catherine Ryan Howard talks about her latest nerve-shredding suspense, Runtime, a book that was shortlisted for the Irish Book Awards Crime Fiction Book of the Year and is a top 10 Kindle bestseller. Catherine has been dubbed the queen of high-concept thrillers for her intricate plotting. First up, I asked her about her revelation that Runtime was actually inspired by her actor brother, John Ryan Howard. You've said that the original idea was inspired by your brother. Can you tell us about that connection? Yeah, he loves when I do interviews about this book because he gets a mention. So he's an actor and a few years ago he was in an independent Irish horror movie called Beyond the Woods. And of course, he was telling me like all about the experience of being on set. And one of the things he said, and it, Beyond the Woods, if you read Runtime, will sound very familiar because it was filmed in this house out in the middle of nowhere in the core countryside in the dead of winter overnight. They were shooting everything at night. And he said one of the first things they did is the director had to go to the local police station and say, look, if someone calls you, at four in the morning to say, I hear screams. I think someone's getting murdered. They're not. It's just us filming. And of course, being a crime writer, I immediately thought, what if it is someone getting murdered? That's a great cover story. You're giving yourself a bit of time to get away a head start. When I sat down to write the book, that idea went away and it turned into something else. But that's the initial seed. And I loved the idea of there being a script for a horror movie that when the actors go to film it, the same things that are happening in the script start to happen on the set. Because, of course, your first question, I think, would be, is this really happening or is my director secretly filming me or something? It's hard to know what's real and what's not. And I think that's at the core of the novel. Yes, exactly. You do open with a scene where the director and an assistant go and knock on someone's door and say, if you hear any screaming, don't worry. and 
I immediately thought, oh, what a perfect cover for a crime. <laughs> exactly that. The story does show a very close understanding of the filming process, what happens on set and all the different roles that there are in the production side of things. And I wondered if you'd had any personal experience of that yourself. I really don't. Like, first of all, my brother was a great resource, of course, and I have a couple of other friends who'd be involved in the industry. So if there was something specific I wanted to know, I would go and ask them. And then I made sure after I'd written it that I had done it right. But I actually love movies about movies. So I love For Your Consideration and I love, there's a great movie called The TV Set, which is about trying to get a comedy made. And they're both comedies themselves. And I just love all that kind of insider inside the industry. I wouldn't have any deep knowledge of it, but I think there's a lot of parallels between being an actress and being a writer in that you're both in this entertainment industry in a creative industry and I just used every little thing I had heard about. There is some stuff that literally I got from people I know, especially there's a scene towards the beginning where Adele, the main character, goes to audition for a commercial. And my brother has done lots of commercial auditions and I was asking him, what are they like? And he said, the funniest thing is you're often given completely contradictory instruction so that you go into audition and they say your character is confident but also terrified show us that and what are you supposed to do so I just love all that I think it's hilarious and I used as much as I could in the book to make it seem like I had some in-depth knowledge yes so it switches between the book that the film is based on and the film set itself and it's quite hard sometimes to think about hang on a sec are we in the book or are we in the Carol Drinkwater is the beloved star of the English TV show All Creatures Great and Small and best known for a series of bestsellers about her life on an olive farm in Provence made into a high-rating TV show called Carol Drinkwater's Secret Provence. But Carol also writes fiction and her latest historical romance, Act of Love, is a heart-wrenching World War II story about a French village that opened its arms as the Nazis closed in. Set in mountains, not far from where she lives. Tell us about the story and how you came across it. Well, though the story is entirely fiction, the incidents are not. And this part of the Alps where the book is set is in fact about an hour inland of our olive farm. And I happened to be up there, oh, I don't know, just wrecking around for looking for ideas and things. And I came upon this village and there was the tiniest museum I'd ever seen, which no longer exists, alas. And in there, there were one or two, not exact photographs, but there were just references to incidents that had happened in the Second World War. And I dug a little deeper and found out that in fact, this village, because we were in the free zone, this area is the free zone of France. The Nazis came in and they took most of France, but they didn't take this southern section down here. And so Jews were down here and those who thought that they were in danger from the Nazis came to live in this corner. And then as the Nazis started to move into the free zone, it became a dangerous area for anybody who was a target for them, particularly Jews. And this one small village Inland of Nice, about an hour's bus ride inland of Nice, voted 100% to take in refugees. 
It was a village of about 300 people, just farming people and mountain people. And within, oh, within six months, there was almost a thousand people there. And all the other people, of course, were foreigners. They were Lithuanian-speaking, Polish-speaking. They were Jews from all over Europe that were fleeing the Nazis. And they were safe for almost a year in this village. I don't want to give the details away because that's what the story is inspired by. But it is the most remarkable story of how completely different peoples came together and created for a short while during a war an area and an environment of peace and acceptance and diversity. And it so inspired me that I thought I must write a story. So my story is basically about a Polish-Jewish family, but particularly the 17-year-old daughter who is on the cusp of her life, the verge of her life. She's about to step out and wants to go dancing and do all the things that young girls want to do for fall in love, etc. But there she is caught up in a war zone situation. However, within this village, she finds certain areas where she's welcome and her life begins to open up. So that's the basis of the story. The act of love that the book refers to is not just a simple romantic love. We're not going to give it away, but she makes a, quite a self-sacrificing act for the benefit of others. I wondered if you could talk about those terms of love at the heart of the book. As I say, it is a wonderful romance, but it's much more than a romance, isn't it? Well, I think the point is that, yes, it is much more than a romance. What she sees is the risks the local people are taking to hide and look after 500 completely unknown foreigners whose lives are completely in danger. If they are caught, they will be murdered. And if the villagers are caught, they too will be murdered. It is about opening yourself up to others and taking risks in order that we can all share the best of the world. And in the light of that, she makes a gesture, which I'm not going to say what it is, obviously. She takes a step which is extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary. And there were young women who made similar gestures, similar steps, not specifically Sarah's story, because I've made that one up. But that becomes one of the most important parts of her growing process, of her maturity into womanhood, is to understand that actually opening your arms to embrace, no matter what the risks are, actually what really makes life worth living. Natasha Lester featured in Encore, a show for guests who've already been on Binge Reading before, talking about her latest World War II saga, The Three Lives of Alex Saint-Pierre. It's a story that best-selling novelist Kate Quinn has called a triple-stranded delight. Former American spy Alex returns to Paris in 1947, determined to build a new life for herself with a fascinating job in the house of Christian Dior. But among the bolts of silk and cocktails at the Ritz, an old enemy lurks. Alex must reach back into her wartime past to trap a former adversary, hoping it's not too late to build a new future from under his shadow. We know from our last talk that you have got a long-standing passion for Dior, so tell us about that briefly. I have, this book was a bit of an accident in terms of how Dior was woven into the story, I have to say. I mean, I love his 
gowns. I think he really revolutionized fashion. He's one of few designers who can lay claim to having changed fashion so radically. But for this one, because I was really interested in what happened to women after the war, they had amazing independence. They'd been able to earn their own money, work in any job anywhere during wartime because all the men were away. And then suddenly the men came back from the war and women were actively dissuaded from working and told to return to the home and return to the kitchen. And I wanted to examine what that might have felt like for women. And tied up in all of that is the new look. And Dior is often scapegoated as being part of that re-domestication of women. But I think that's oversimplifying it. I think it's much more complicated than that. And in fact, I think that he actually, his aim was to celebrate women at a time where women were told to return to the background and he was trying to bring them back to the foreground. So in in some ways he was doing the opposite of what he's often blamed for. So for this particular story, Dior worked well because he was such a marker for what was happening with women at the time, given the themes that I was trying to explore. And it didn't hurt that I do love his designs and his gowns as well, I guess. <laughs> That's lovely. Yes, there is a very strong theme underlying it of how things changed for women after the war and just how utterly closeted they were in a sense. I was quite shocked that I don't think I even realized that some places women had to get their husband's permission before they could work. Yeah. Oh, it was incredible to me when I was reading. I knew that there were things like I knew women couldn't have their own bank account, for example, at that time. And, and you know, women weren't allowed to wear trousers into public places in Paris and they weren't allowed to wear trousers into restaurants in Manhattan. So I knew there were some strange things like that going on, but I started reading Carmel Snow's memoir, in fact, um, Carmel Snow being the famous editor of Harper's Bazaar. And that was where I really began to see the the way in which women almost had to be married in order to have some level of access to finances because you couldn't, as a single woman, own a credit card, get a loan, put it in a credit application to a bank. You had to bring along a man to co-sign those kinds of applications for you. So this idea that a woman required a man in her life to be able to access those parts of society almost forced women into getting married. And it's this very strange way of imagining society, you know, particularly for me as a woman who's always been able to own a bank account and, you know, apply for a credit card and wear trousers wherever I please. I wanted to unpick how that might have felt once again to have been able to wear trousers into factories during the war because that was what your work involved. And then suddenly to have that totally taken away from you and the money that you earned to have no rights over that, that kind of a really tricky situation to be in and to not necessarily have the freedom to just choose to work and to really be, I suppose, a a possession in a way. I mean, that's really how women were. And that must have felt shocking. Strange Sally Diamond is the latest dark and twisted thriller from award-winning Irish novelist Liz Nugent. In this interview, Liz talks about why she loves writing gripping historical bestsellers that are always laced with black humour and explains how Sally is pretty close to herself. She's Liz without a filter. Your books all have intensely brilliant twists 
And your newest, and the one we're talking about today, Strange Sally Diamond, is no exception. The opening is just really mind-boggling when you read that first paragraph, and because it is so striking, I wondered if you'd mind reading that first paragraph to us. Sure. Okay. Me. I should have had this open before we started, but here we go. Put me out with the bins, he said regularly. When I die, put me out with the bins. I'll be dead, so I won't know any different. You'll be crying your eyes out. And he would laugh. And I'd laugh too, because we both knew that I wouldn't be crying my eyes out. I never cry. Yeah, so in those few lines, you've already told us that Sally is different from other people. It establishes the fact that there is something not typical about Sally's behaviour. Somebody who doesn't cry and is quite confident about the fact that she doesn't cry. And so questions are asked in that first paragraph. Is she not crying because she doesn't love her father? Or is she not crying? You know, what? why? It just sounds off because they're laughing together and yet she's not going to cry when he dies. There's something strange about Sally. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And all of your books that I've seen anyway have exactly that same shock opening. You've said that you learnt this from TV shows like Breaking Bad. Tell us a bit about that. Well, I loved Breaking Bad and The Sopranos and all of those shows, Ozark, about very flawed and damaged people. And I think they're far more interesting than The Waltons or The House of the Prairie, which are all about like lovely families who are all very nice. I just find flawed and damaged characters. In fiction, I hasten to add, my husband is a very nice man, but I find those flawed uh, characters very interesting. But I always, in most of the other books, and I'm not talking about Sally Diamond, but most of the other books, they're told from the point of view of a sociopath or a psychopath. And this is the first time I've departed a bit from that and written from the point of view of somebody who's actually very good and straightforward, almost too straightforward because of her difference. And I really enjoyed writing her. It was quite a relief because I don't know why I had always leant towards writing these monstrous characters before, but writing Sally was a great relief to me. I really loved her by the end of it. Yeah, that's wonderful. How do you get inside the heads of these monsters? And well, alarmingly easily. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I trained as an actress many years ago. And I think that really helped me to get inside the mind of a character. So when it's a character that I'm writing myself, I think like they do. And so the kind of sociopathic characters that I'm dealing with, it's not like they wake up in the morning thinking, whose life am I going to screw up today? It's always that they have some rationale behind she shouldn't have provoked me or he bought it on himself or if he hadn't done that, I wouldn't have had to do that. There's always some rationale behind the way that they're thinking. So they have a kind of a superiority complex and they have a logic behind their actions. Even though it's really askew, there is a logic to what they do. And a lot of it stems from background trauma. And that is also the case with Sally. But because she doesn't remember any of it, all of the trauma that happened to Sally happened before she was seven years old. 
And for various reasons, which are revealed in the book, she doesn't remember any of it. So she has no idea when we meet her around the age of 42, I think. She has no idea what her background really is, where she really came from. Anne Parker is an award-winning author of the Silver Rush mystery series set in 19th century Colorado. And yes, that is Silver Rush as distinct from the possibly better known Gold Rush. Anne talks about how a close family relationship led to her writing the Colorado series and why being a science writer has been a big advantage to her fiction career. The series was initially set in Leadville, Colorado, but the latest book, The Secret in the Wall, is set in San Francisco. I asked her how she got started. I understand you've got a family connection with the Leadville area. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's actually, I have a lot of family history in Colorado in general. My parents were raised there and I still have cousin and a brother was there. But it actually was my paternal grandmother who was raised in Leadville in the late 19th century. And this was a bit of family history I didn't know until I was, oh gosh, into my 40s and heading toward 50. And as a family genealogist, I was shocked because truly all she ever talked about, I remember, was she talked about Denver, Colorado and how wonderful it was and how she met grandpa and stuff. So when my uncle told me that my grandmother was raised in Leadville, I was like, oh, what's Leadville? I've never heard of this place. And my uncle got very excited and said, oh my gosh, it was just the biggest mining area in the country at the time and silver mining. And people came from all over. It was like the gold rush in California. He says, oh, Anne, I know you've been thinking about writing some fiction. You need to research Leadville and set a novel there. I just followed my uncle's directions, and, and it's been quite a journey, I gotta say. So was it a bigger area than the Nevada area, was it, in its time? In its time, it was. It, people came from all over the world to Leadville, and many of them didn't realize it's up at 10,000 feet in the Rocky Mountains, so it's like almost like two miles, and uh, there was no infrastructure at first, and no railroads, so people would get up there and spend their last pocket money and be stuck in a place where winter lasts nine months out of the year. And it, there were some harrowing stories from up there in that time. Yeah, it was quite interesting. So your lady sleuth, Inez, <laughs> she has been on quite a journey herself because she started out on the East Coast and she ended up in Leadville. So in book one, she makes that transition Tell us a bit about Inez and where she came from. Okay. First of all, I'll just say this right out. Inez Stannard is my granny's maiden name. Ah. The one who was raised in Leadville. Now, granny was a very proper woman, but I just loved her name. I found it, it had such a strong ring to it, and I wanted to honor her in some way. So I actually asked the family, I said, the ones that were left, she was long gone. Granny would be okay if I took her name and gave it to this rough, this strong-minded, strong-willed woman who runs a saloon up Huntville. And they said, well, she'd love it. She'd just be pickled. She'd think it was great. That's how the name came about. Tell us about The Secret in the Wall. 
I'm always on the lookout for ideas, plot ideas that show up in either historical documents or newspapers. And actually, this body in the wall thing was born from a real incident in San Francisco where they were digging in the basement or sub-basement of a San Francisco house and unearthed a coffin <laughs> and a perfectly preserved body inside, and they had no idea who this was. How did they end up down here? Well, it turns out that the house was sitting on top of what used to be an old cemetery in San Francisco. All the bodies had theoretically been moved. Ah, they missed a few, including this one. And I read that article back in 2016. I think, and it just sat in the back of my mind. I was thinking, that is so cool. And then when it came time to write this book, it was like the body just moved into the wall. <laughs> it was like, wow, let's see what happens from here. <laughs> and in the final excerpt from 2023's Best of Binge Reading episodes, biographical fiction author Marie Benedict talks about her latest bestseller, The Mitford Affair, the story of the beautiful and notorious Mitford sisters, famous as the debutante daughters of an English peer and then infamous as World War II traitors. Critics rave about Marie's uncanny ability to unearth untold women's stories. She's written about Albert Einstein's first wife, the hidden life of Agatha Christie, J.P. Morgan's personal librarian, Andrew Carnegie's maid. She's written about them all. But the Whitford story is far from an untold one. I asked her what attracted her to these famous sisters. Now, with the Mitford affair, which has been described as downtown Abbey meets the ground, six extraordinary sisters who enthralled yeah. England and much of the world. Now, they look in the mid-1930s like they were totally destined to marry lords and just to have a rich and, and aristocratic life. And because of the way things turned out politically with the war, it didn't happen like that at all. Now, you excavate the rivalries between the sisters very well. Was that part of what drew you to the story, the way they all six worked together or against each other? Yeah, it was fascinating to me. So I am the oldest of six, four sisters and two brothers, and my family is not like theirs. Nobody's like them at first. But at the same time, I have seen firsthand the way in which sibling relationships dictate our personalities, our belief systems, the decisions we make, and sometimes it's unconscious. And when I got to know the Midford story, which actually they weren't super well known to me until I did some research for another book I wrote about the Churchills. And I wrote a book about Winston Churchill's wife. And the Midfords who were related to the Churchills kept on coming up. And that was when I learned more and more about the role these women played first as social luminaries who defied everybody's expectations that they'd marry well, right, except for one sister, and then these darker pieces of their past. And that story overlaid with this sibling relationship and the way in which these sisters each followed dramatically different political paths at a time period of, of great unrest and great polarization. It was just fascinating to me to see how those things evolved, particularly when you look at our own society and the way in which we have so much polarization today. I'm always interested 
in the way in which the past reverberates into the present. And I just, I couldn't resist it. I couldn't resist their story. Their mother, Lady Reedsdale, apparently once said, whenever I see the words Pierre's daughter in a headline, I know it's going to be something about one of my girls. Yes, um, exactly. And she wasn't exaggerating, was she? No, she wasn't. I mean, they were regularly in the newspaper. Now, admittedly, in the earlier years, it was more society reports. You know, the girls were all debutantes. They were always the best balls and their outfits and the people they danced with, all those things. And that was another interesting part of the world. And yet, as the years went on, what they were most known for was the scandals in which they became embroiled, beginning with Diana, the third oldest, who had been, oh my gosh, she's the one who started out marrying well, right? She married the heir to the Guinness Beer Fortune, had this fabulous life with her adoring husband and her two young children, and she left it all for a married man, Sir Oswald Wellesley, who was the head of the leader of the fascist unit in Great Britain. And it was just unfathomable to people. And it was the stuff of great scandal. I mean, that was the sort of thing that just simply wasn't done. Even today, it would have been a huge scandal, but back then even more so. And that was just the beginning of the sorts of things that these sisters became headline news. Mosley, I, I could not really understand the attraction for him. And when I googled around a weenie bit about him, I found that he was an absolute philanderer who at right at the beginning made it clear that he wasn't going to leave his wife. She understood right from the beginning that wasn't going to happen. Did you ever really get a sense of why he was so utterly tempting? You know, it's such a great question. And you and I are not the only two to muse on that. Sometimes when I give speeches, I like to even just show pictures. Like her first husband was stunning and smart and kind and adored her. And then you've got this other guy who's a cat and he's married and he's sleeping with his sisters-in-law and he's just awful in every sense of the word. And I don't know that we'll ever really know why, but I think my personal pop psychology view, having spent way too much time with Diana, is that it was the thrill of the chase. You know, Mosley was never, ever really hers. Not even when they married, not even in later years. I don't want to give too much away, but when they were social pariahs, when they had children together, he was a challenge. And Diana was very smart. She lived in an era where careers were really weren't something that women, at least women of her stature, generally did. And I think she was horribly bored by all that adulation an easy life that Brian Guinness offered. And I think Mosley was a challenge. Yes. And she went after him with her heart and her mind. She became fully enamored of his belief system. She was an apolitical creature prior to being with him. She adopted his views as her views. And I think it, everything she did was service of keeping Mosley close. That's my personal view. I think he never really was hers. And that was a great challenge for her. Next week on Binge Reading, introducing a month of romance for St. Valentine's Day. Remember, we're fortnightly now, so the next show will run January 31 with Rochelle Weinstein's Romance 
what you do to me. A trip back down memory lane with a background of nostalgic hit songs and a terrific Spotify playlist to accompany it. Journalist Cecilia James is a sucker for a love song. So when she stumbles across a clue to the identity of the muse for one of rock's greatest hits, she devotes herself to uncovering the truth even as her own relationship is falling apart. That's next time on The Joys of Binge Reading. If you've enjoyed this roundup, follow up by listening to these and other episodes in full. There are now nearly 300 interviews on the Binge Reading site with something to suit every reader. And if you enjoy what you've heard, leave us a review so others will find us too. There's plenty of great books there they'd love to read and you'd be helping them find them. Word of mouth is still the best form of recommendation, so get to it, leave us a review. That's it for today. See you next time and happy reading.